at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts chapter 2. Let me just set this passage up a little bit. Um, Several months before this, Jesus said to the apostles, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. He was saying that the church was a future event that he was responsible to build and that nothing would thwart it. Much has happened before... um, Uh, These men um, experience the early church. Christ is arrested. He's uh, nailed on Calvary's tree. Um, He pays the price for our sins. In the process of that event and his death, the, the curtain is rent in two, signifying that from now on, God's children will have direct access to God. Now, we don't appreciate that. But if you had lived in Israel a um, hundred years before this, you would have to have depended upon a priest once a year going in to the Holy of Holies and representing your cause and Israel's cause um, and representing that before the Lord in hopes that God would forgive all of these things. Such a scary process, they tied a rope around his ankle so that if he didn't move around, they put bells on him. So if they stopped hearing the bells... They would assume that God had struck him dead and they would pull him out. Now, I don't know if that ever happened, but i got to tell you, if you're, the, if you're the priest in there that day, you're moving as quick as you can and making sure you say things just right. Well, in one fell swoop, that curtain was uh, torn, and we have direct access to God. Direct access. Now, it, it gets even more uh, profound. Think about this. Um, just a, a few... Um, Uh, moments before Luke pins this passage, he tells us about the the existence, the beginning of the first church. And in the first church, all of a sudden we discover another fulfillment of what Christ promised the disciples, and that was that um, the Holy Spirit would come to be resident in them. You know, phenomenal thing that not only has he rent the, the curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies, but he's made us the holy of holies. He's poured the Holy Spirit into us. And this was something the Old Testament saint had no uh, possibility of ever having. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came and left, came and left. He came and produced power in the life of the person that he came upon. He left. But uh, when the church was to begin, the Holy Spirit would be poured into the lives and into the bodies of the members of the body of Christ. And we would become the holy of holies where God would reside. And it doesn't stop there because Paul will later pin letters to Ephesus and to Philippi and he'll talk about the fact that Christ is in us and that God the Father is in us. The whole Godhead is in us. I don't understand that. I don't understand how that happens. But I know that we are uh, uniquely blessed by God as his presence um, is, is within us. And so all of these events are surrounding uh, these men as they sit in an upper room being reminded that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. They all of a sudden do receive the Holy Spirit. And then um, they're, they're reminded that they have a task. And Peter is given the task of going out and proclaiming the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the very first time in all of mankind, they will hear the message on the day of Pentecost Men and women from all over the world 
Um, probably Jews coming to celebrate Passover are in, in Jerusalem. Everyone hears that message in their own uh, tongue. Uh, onlookers think that they're drunk. Onlookers think they're crazy. Uh, you see, there's been a broiling argument that's been going on now for a month and a half. And the argument uh, sounds kind of like this. Did Jesus really raise from the dead or, or did, did, the, did, did Rome steal him away or did his disciples steal him away? 500 people literally saw him. Many ate with him. And they had uh, time with him. And so they become the apologetic. They become the argument for the, the existence of a living Savior. And this argument has been broiling and broiling. And so the crowd grows with interest to see what Peter is going to say. Because Peter was with him. Even though he denied him, Peter now is um, going to be the spokesman for the church. And Peter delivers that great message to all these godly Jews that come from all over the world, and 3,000 in one day are added to the church. I can't imagine the nightmare that that must have been. 3,000 people added to the church, all with their own kind of understanding of what happened and their ignorance about what happened and all of these things. And into that, into that um, melee of confusion, we get this passage in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves, and really, literally, it says, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I have, um, over the years, been a student of church growth. I, I'm fascinated about um, how the church and how onlookers perceive the church today and how they explain the phenomenon that should have gone away in the first century, uh, a phenomenon that continued on through great uh, martyrdom and, and great persecution. And I'm, I'm interested in how people explain that away as more than just a club, a, a fad, um, you, you move into the modern day, and we have a lot of people trying to define a formula. You know, in America, we love formulas. We really believe the formula for su success is this. If you give something enough uh, energy, enough resource, and enough time, it will always succeed. Now, we believe that in America. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, that is really not true at all. <laughs> And there are many examples of that not being true um, reflected maybe in your portfolio of companies that had every reason to succeed but didn't. I remember Webvan came along. I don't know if you remember Webvan, but it was the greatest thing since bubblegum. It had all the, it had all the, the greatest uh, mines uh, assembled. It had all the money it needed. It had excess money left over after they even organized the company. Only one problem, they had a horrible business plan and they went under. But they did all the three things that the Americans think you have to do uh, to succeed. That translated into the church becomes um, an interesting phenomenon. 
because we are uh, Americans and because we live in this country, we kind of believe that that formula will work in the church. I have friends of mine who have pastored churches for years and they've never grown beyond 100 people and they believe there's something wrong with the formula. And I'm saying, you know what, you need to read Acts chapter 2 and go back to the very basics because the church is wired according to God's DNA. See, it's really God's program. Christ said, I'll start the church. Now, now we can't be stupid. If, if we built a building that looked like it belonged in the 12th century, none of you would come unless you thought you wanted to visit a museum. So we do have to use our brains and be modern people because God has always been relevant and has always called a modern people to uh, his word. But there is a formula that... Um, will work if it recognizes the DNA of the church. Don't you love that word DNA? De- deoxyribonucleic acid. You ought to be able to say that once a year just to kind of get it out and clear the, clear the, the, the pipes there. I was a microbiology major in college when um, uh, Watkins and Crick uh, were given the Nobel Prize for the, the, the description of DNA. Uh, DNA, phenomenal. I mean, it's phenomenal. You are what you are today in great part because of your DNA. You know, all of us have the same kind of DNA. We have human DNA. It differentiates us from the rest of the animal world. I know you got it because I, you're sitting here and you look like a human. Okay? Now, now one step further, we all have unique DNA. We, If at had time, we're going to show you a, a short uh, video on finding your shape. We did third base yesterday, and and third base is involved in trying to help you find your shape, your shape, um, your spiritual gift, your heart for ministry, uh, your abilities, your personality, and your experiences. I, for a minute, thought I couldn't spell shape. That's shape, right? Um, You see, God wired you and brought you here, and you're here in this church by divine appointment, And God wired you so that you could fit into this church in such a way that you could make a contribution. That's your personal DNA. DNA, it's all about DNA. Um, If you you mutate uh, that simple little um, four bases and their arrangement in our 46 chromosomes, uh, it it may cost you your life. Uh, It may uh, create uh, cancer. It may create a terminal disease. It's all about DNA. Um, We replicate. Um, we, our kids look like us. Our grandkids look like us. It's all about DNA. And so when I talk about DNA of the church, there, there is a characteristic about the church that has God's fingerprints all over it. And if we miss that characteristic, we don't have the real church. You see, you can get together. We can come together and have a great time. But that's not what church is all about. Church is all about what God says it should be all about. And it should represent God's DNA. And so I thought this is a great place to to start. I started with one sermon and and, um, told Philip I probably have 10 in this. And I don't think he's going to be gone 10 more weeks before I retire. So um, I'm not praying for illness or sickness. The church's DNA. Here's the first example that we have of it. Nine characteristics that I've given you. And the first one is an interesting characteristic. They were committed to doctrine. 
They were committed to teaching. Now, you could ask the question, what did they teach? Because this is the first opportunity for church to be together. There is no New Testament. Paul hasn't written his letters. In fact, Matthew won't be written for another 28, 29 years. So they don't even have the gospel. Notice they they were committed to the apostles' teaching. We understand by that that God used gifted people to proclaim his word to the church. And notice it's listed first in the original language of the New Testament. The order is important. The the writer of Luke decides that he wants to first uh, point our attention to the fact that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The word teaching and doctrine are the same word in the Greek language. And so here we have the, the doctrinal basis of the average church that represents God's DNA. Now, you may think that that's not a big thing. If you're involved with Valley, you know that we have a high commitment to the, the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God, that it is the, what we're all about. Uh, we uh, didn't do that by accident. We believe that we are the church of God, and we need to represent and replicate that DNA. But you would be surprised to find that um, we're a growing minority among churches in America today. That there's a whole, uh, whole philosophy that says uh, doctrine is not working. And so, therefore, we need to, uh, from the pulpit, prepare messages that minister to the needs, the felt needs of our people. Not, not that we are insensitive to them, but I, I, that statement assumes that the Word of God is insensitive to the felt needs of Rich Rollins. And I have to tell you, the Word of God has been my source of encouragement. It's been my source of growth. It's been my source of refuge when I've been in the storm. It's been the place that I could go and find hope and help. It is the Word of God. My daughter tells a story of being on a church staff and inviting. She was teaching uh, middle school. Her husband was a youth pastor, and, and she invited all the middle school teachers to come to church with her. She'd been witnessing to them, and she wanted them to experience church. They came, and that Sunday, the pastor spent his sermon on um, identifying and categorizing the fitness centers in the area. Yeah, he went list by list. There were four fitness centers. He talked about their fees, their hours, the equipment they have. He was doing a series on the body. And, and, and Jenny calls me and she said, Dad, you, you wouldn't believe it. I invited all these people to church and they learned which gym they can join. You see, it was a a church that was beginning the process of diminishing the importance of doctrine. Doctrine is very important to us because it is within the Word of God that we discover God's plan for our life. Peter says it this way, we have been given all we need for life and godliness. When he said that, he was talking about the written Word of God. So they were committed to doctrine. Uh, They didn't find it uncomfortable. They didn't find it stodgy. They didn't find it um, unpleasant, but they found it... um, Uh, medicinal to their life as they were beginning a whole new endeavor. Second, they were committed to being together. Um, I I love this uh, whole concept. And and here it's talking about being together as a church, Um, being together as a group of people who are saved, who are believers, and find the need to corporately express their worship, uh, to be in fellowship. The, The language is pretty specific and, uh, and lest we foist our modern concept into this uh, context, we need to understand that um, only in the Western world do we get Sunday off. 
You know, uh, when we were in Bangladesh, we discovered that uh, Sunday is a work day. In fact, uh, it's very biblical. Um, The church called this day, not Sunday, but the first day of the week. It was the first day you went to work. In fact, uh, we've done an interesting thing in the church. Um, We have made Sunday the end of our week. Okay? And and I ask you this question. What is your paradigm? Is Sunday the end of your week in which all of the misery that happened this week has kind of culminated here and you take a fresh breath of air? Now, that sounds good. Or is Sunday the beginning of the next week, which could be marvelous if you let God minister to you right now? The church began with the concept that this is the first day of the week. And now these people didn't have the day off. Uh, there was no extensive middle class. There were two groups of people, those who had, those who had not. And they met at night after they'd worked all day long. They didn't have, uh, they didn't have uh, electricity. They didn't have the opportunity to provide light. Most people went to bed when it got dark or you went to church. <laughs> and so these people found a commitment to be together on a regular basis. Why? Because they discovered they really needed it. They really discovered something uh, of a great need. And, and the third thing that Luke tells us was unique to the DNA of the church is they observed the Lord's table. Now, you, you may not understand why this is important. L- let me tell you a little a thing about myself, and I'm ashamed to say this, but it's true. I, I grew up in a Christian home. I was saved at the age of seven. So I wasn't saved out of drugs and alcohol. I, I wasn't even a little punk the way Philip was at 14, though I... <laughs> I doubt that he was very effective as a punk at 14. But anyway, uh, I, you know, I, it was, my salvation was easy in my mind. And I used to th- kind of think this way, you know, God uh, saved me, but he didn't work as hard to save me as he might have had to, to work to save you. You know what I mean? Age seven, grew up in the Christian home. Mom and dad who loved me. Mom and dad who were committed Christians. Nothing really bad had happened except I crashed my bike once and, you know. But, you know, I found myself uh, in health care. I found myself on the fast track, um, really succeeding. And I found my marriage beginning to dissolve. I found myself drifting away from the Lord. All of a sudden, through some friends' uh, interaction in my life, I woke up. And I realized that, you know what? God worked as hard to save me as he worked to save anybody that we can argue about who was the deadest. We were all dead in our sins and trespasses. I think God knew that the church would begin to be casual about getting together. And for that reason, the Lord's Supper becomes important. For the Lord said, as long as you take of this cup and eat of this bread, you will remember my death until I come. See, we need to be remembered that we're not here just as a club. We're not here just because... um, God's invited us to a great event. We're here because Christ paid the price at Calvary for our entrance into the body of Christ. And it's easy in our lifestyle to get so caught up in the busyness of things to forget the great price paid for our being here. I think it's why Pastor Phil so um, emphasizes this whole area of our being together because it it is uh, our temptation to become casual about our entry into the church. And so they uh, had the Lord's uh, Supper. Every time they got together, they, they celebrated. And, and I've been in churches like that. 
And, and, the, and I think the purpose was to drive them to the, the purpose of their salvation. Notice they were committed to prayer. Um, and here is the first time that we see the church praying together collectively. There's some great examples of it. You know, Peter later will find himself in jail for preaching the gospel, and the church will get together in Jerusalem and start praying for him. And, and it's kind of a funny story because they're praying for him, and he's released, right? And... Uh, and he goes and knocks on the door, and a gal comes and sees him and runs back and says, it looks like Peter. <laughs> and they wouldn't believe it was Peter. Isn't it interesting how sometimes we pray and God answers the prayer, and we don't really believe it. God's really answered the prayer. Well, here's the church um, praying. Uh, Larry Howard, uh, one of our elders, is uh, giving direction to our prayer effort corporately as a church because uh, we never believe that we are spending enough time meeting uh, the needs of people. One of the reasons Fellowship One becomes uh, important to us is because ultimately you'll be able to put your prayer request in there and give direction to who needs to be praying about that request. We need to be a praying church. We're not going to make it without prayer. Uh, we're entering, I believe, some of the darkest years that we've ever had in this country. And as we do that, we need to continue to shine as the light that God intended for us to do. And prayer is the only way that that's going to happen. Uh, Notice uh, the the fifth characteristic of this DNA is they they remained amazed, absolutely amazed at God's working. Now, um, this is an interesting uh, concept in in the modern church. You know, there are two two groups here today and there are two kinds of churches um, represented by those two groups. One group believes that all the sign gifts are still available today. And there may be some of you that, that believe, uh, believe that. And uh, a second group believes that all the sign gifts have stopped today. Most of you probably are in that camp. The, the tragedy that's happened to the church that believes the sign gifts have stopped today is that not only did we get rid of the sign gifts, we got rid of a miraculous God. So many of us don't believe that God's still doing miracles. You see, uh, we've seen people in this church healed not because we were a healer, but because God healed. We have prayed for people and, and seen. But, you know, it's interesting how the doubt just uh, invades our minds. I, I never forget, I tell the story. I was teaching a, a Sunday school class in, in Salem, Oregon. It was really an interesting class. We had uh, our congressman in there. We had uh, some people from the city. Uh, we had uh, people from every walk of life in this Sunday school class. And uh, we had a guy in our class, his name was Quick Draw Charlie. Charlie Gorsuch was his name, and he was the mascot for the state of Oregon for the state fair. You saw him everywhere, and, and Charlie was uh, six, eight and a half, 300 pounds, huge, with a huge beard, and wore a great big, I don't know how many gallon hat. And that was the picture you saw him holding a colorful rooster all over the state of Oregon. He was an artist, and he would be um, positioned at the beginning of the fair as you went in, and he would do the caricatures for kids and things. And he became so popular in the state, they decided to use him as uh, the, the figurehead for the state fair. And the state fair in Oregon, by the way, is a big thing because there's absolutely nothing to do in Oregon <laughs> when the state fair is not happening. Well, anyway, those of you from Oregon listening to this, please forgive me, but you know I'm, tr- I'm telling the truth. The state closes at 8.30 every night. Um, well, uh, Charlie was in our Sunday school class, and he went to, uh, he'd been having some problems. He went to the medical center, and, 
and they diagnosed him with cancer, not just cancer, but, but terminal cancer. He had cancer that was spread throughout his whole body. Uh, 32 years of age, it was uh, spreading rapidly, and so we began praying for him. Uh, now, this is a Baptist church, so prayer makes us feel a little uncomfortable sometimes. And so we prayed. Uh, sometimes half the Sunday school class was spent in prayer. The news got out, and pretty soon all the churches in Salem were praying for him. And then uh, within uh, two or three months, all the churches in Oregon and Washington were praying for a quick draw, Charlie. Uh, this went on for about a year and a half. Uh, he, he got to the place where he was facing a wheelchair. He had lost 100 pounds. Uh, he was emaciated. And one day he went down to the medical center and he had no cancer. No cancer. Now, it's really interesting because we took a poll. I said, what do you think happened? Half the people thought they'd misdiagnosed him. Huh? Only half the people believe that really God healed him. You see, we are just filled with a lot of suspicion and doubt as a people in America. And you know what? God is still doing miraculous things. He's still healing people. He's still doing things in our families and in this church that you cannot explain in any way other than his miraculous intervention. And we can tell you story after story in this church of how God has done miraculous things. And so we as a people need to be careful that as we adopt the DNA of God's church, we adopt a miraculous God who's still changing lives and doing miraculous things. Uh, notice that uh, they put people first. Um, it says all the believers were together and they had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Now, we can take this and... and um, and if you take it literally, you go home and sell your house and, and give the church all of your money because we have people who have need. But I think you've got to see the context here. Um, are you one of the ones that has need? Is that why you're... Uh, um, the youth pastors are down here applauding the fact that we're going to sell our homes and give the money to the church. Um, see, they didn't have banks. They didn't have Visa. They didn't have checking accounts. They didn't have ready cash. Everything was done on bartering. And when you made a payment, you paid someone that day for their work. And so if there was a need that arose in the church, you had to sell property. You had, you had to liquidate your resources. You had to provide resources for the church. And this was a, a daily thing. Barnabas becomes famous in this church for his, uh, his giving, selling land and giving the money uh, to the church. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira become infamous because they pledged to God something uh, of the proceeds of their property, which they, they did freely and then lied about it when the gift came and God took both their lives. Why did he do that? I think God wanted to impress upon the church that God's not going to require of you the amount you're going to give, but when you decide you're going to give it, he's going to hold you accountable for what you vowed. And, and so God is serious about this. Why? We're believer priests. And, and so the, the whole church was giving uh, to one another. I, I don't know if you saw the, um, on the Olympics, there was a great little segment uh, given, given by Tom Brokaw on, um, on the, the, the city of Gander in Newfoundland in Canada. I don't know if you saw that or not. Uh, on 9-11, on um, we forget this, that when 9-11 happened, 56 minutes after 9-11 happened, the FAA grounded all planes in America, all planes. Well, there were 400 planes heading from Europe 
to North America when that happened. 200 of them turned, were, were at the place where they could still turn around. They turned around and went back. They interviewed one of the pilots, and she remembers looking out of her window and seeing a jumbo jet turn around and begin to go back. Uh, but 167 planes couldn't go back, and uh, they were diverted to uh, this small little 10,000 community gander in Canada. Um, 8,000 people emerged on this community in one fell swoop before they'd even known they had a problem. And this community opened their arms to these people from all over the world. They provided uh, housing for them, provided home-cooked meals. They brought the meals in. They put them in gyms. Uh, They opened their homes to them. They went down and opened the pharmacies and said, if you've got prescriptions, come on down. We'll figure out what it is and we'll fill it because their baggage was still on the plane. They never got their bags off the plane because still of the fear that there may be terrorists still out there. And so all their baggage remained on the plane for the whole trip. They opened uh, department stores and let them clothe themselves and never charged them a dime for it. Uh, See, that's the kind of imagery that uh, Luke is writing to us here of a people who are able to meet needs in extraordinary ways. And it's part of the DNA DNA of the church. We are a people who need to meet needs. Um, Seventh, they were uh, connected. Uh, The connection here is an everyday kind of a thing. We've lost a lot of this in the American church because of our distance. The American church now is defined as something less than a 30-minute drive. And, and when you live 30 minutes, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, 10 minutes from the church, no one knows where you go on Sundays. In fact, someone, most of your people live around you don't even know you're gone on Sunday. If you're like me, I hit a button, my door opens, I back out, I, I'm there just long enough to see that the door is closing and then I have to do that, you know, because I'm getting old. So if I get down and I haven't done that, I have to turn around and come back to make sure the door is closed. Have you ever done that? I know I'm the only one that's ever done that, right? Okay. And, and I'm gone. It, now, my neighbors happen to know that I'm a pastor at Valley, so they, they, they may assume I'm gone, but they would never know. We live in, 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 a, in a culture that is really disconnected. As all the surveys indicate that we're the loneliest people that have ever occupied planet Earth. What is that all about? And we have uh, iPhones, cell phones, email, computers. We have all the gadgetry necessary for us to connect, and somehow we don't feel connected. In fact, sometimes I feel more connected to my friends who are in Indonesia, South Africa, New York City, Pittsburgh, than I do the people next door, or you. See, one of the things that we want to do at Valley is to reconnect us. We're going to talk about some of those programs in the months ahead in terms of our small groups ministry. Notice that one of the characteristics of their being connected is they enjoyed favor. They enjoyed favor. God gives uh, favor to his church. Um, Pastor David Howard and Ron Hughes and Pastor Phil met with the city manager this last week as he outlined uh, what the city wants to do Uh, around us. I made mention of it in our meeting last week. And uh, he he made this statement. He said, uh, the city of Hercules wants to keep the good favor of the church. And we will do whatever we can to partner with you. I thought, you know what? That's a God thing. 
In this day and age, I have friends of mine who pastor. They're trying to get land around them, and the city is opposing the purchase of more land, opposing the expansion of their church. They've been asked to move, but they can't move anywhere because no one wants them to move into their neighborhood. And in that climate, God has given us favor with the city of Hercules. You see, um, this is a, a, a thing that's only characteristic of God's DNA in the church. God gave great favor. And then notice last, God um, added to the church. God added to the church. I told Ronnie Johnson last time I had lunch with him, um, I said, you know, church growth is God's business. You just provide a healthy environment for people to come to, and God will direct the people that he's saving to your church. All the methodology and the gimmickry in the world won't bring people for the right reasons. They'll just be disappointed. But when God adds people to the church, they are people who will come with a purpose to be involved. And so God added to the church. Well, what should we learn about this? What, what is there for Valley Bible Church? I think the first thing is that many of us may need to reexamine the importance of church in our lives. I, I have this sense that we're moving into a culture in which we've added church on. We've added, it's one more event in a, in a busy schedule. And if you want to know the outcome of that paradigm, you want to read the book of Hebrews. See, the recipients of the book of Hebrews uh, are Jews who were very Jewish, and they did all the Jewish things, the, the daily washings, the daily sacrifices, they did all of those things. And then Christ invaded their lives and they became Christians. And instead of exchanging Christ for Judaism, they just added Christianity to their already busy schedule. Huh? Does it sound familiar? You know, some of us are saved, but we're, we're, we're just enmeshed in our jobs, in our homes, and making money, and keeping ends together, and and tying loose ends together, and we're just absolutely overwhelmed, and we've become like the Christians of the book of Hebrews, where now they ought to be teachers. They need to go back and learn all over again the elementary things of the Word of God. You see, I'm afraid that our busy schedules have sucked the life out of church, and church is no longer important. There's an alarming statistic. Fewer and fewer of our kids find church attractive. You know, uh, I... My mom and dad were shaped by the church. I was shaped by the church. I was shaped by my mom and dad's love for the church. My kids were shaped by the church. And my grandkids are being shaped by the church. Is your family being shaped by your attitude of the church? It's something we need to constantly reconsider. Either this is important to us as it is to God... Or we lose the opportunity to have the impact that church will have in our community. I never forget Forrest Edge. I, Forrest, if you're listening, please forgive me for another story. He hates me telling stories on him. But he, he would come to work in healthcare so excited about the church that the people who were unchurched would ask him, Okay, tell us about Sunday. That is a go figure. I used to think, What's happening in his church that's not happening in mine? And he would outline everything, including the sermon. Every Monday, there was a group of people who had resisted the gospel but wanted to hear about what happened at Forest Church. Does your own family even care about what's happening at Valley? Some of us have become 
too busy. Um, we may need to re-examine the importance of church people in our lives. You know, I, I believe we're all friendly, we're all cordial, we all enjoy being here on a Sunday morning. I wonder how many of you have had each other in your homes for lunch, for dinner. We're so busy, that just doesn't happen. And many of us are waiting to be asked. If you wait to be asked, it will never happen. So you have to initiate the, quest, the question. You have to ask. I tell the story about Dean Grotsky, who went to seminary with Philip and I and pastored a church over in the Concord area, and they grew by leaps and bounds for a period of time there. And I asked Dean, I said, "What? explain that to me. He said, well, all of my people, when a visitor shows up, asks that visitor out for dinner after church. I thought, wow. Now, he said, no one is going to accept that offer. It's just not socially acceptable to go to, to lunch or dinner with a stranger. But no one will forget the invitation. Huh? They'll go home and say, you know, nine people invited us for dinner today. Wow, what a friendly church. You, you, you see what I'm saying? We need to be uh, in each other's lives in such a way that we're connected. And then uh, last, we may have to restructure our lives to accommodate the importance of church in our lives. My youngest daughter, Jenny, who is huge with child, and her mother, uh, my wife, who has abandoned me <laughs> to fend for myself, while her daughter, who she thinks needs help now, I think is not quite ready there. But you notice she's not here, so you know she's with her. Uh, my daughter and her uh, husband are involved in a church plant in Compton. In Compton. This is a church where some of the kids in the church do their homework on the floor because of drive-by shootings. This is, a, this is a, hard, a hard church, a hard ministry. And they're seeing people saved every week, sometimes 20, 30 people. It's incredible how God is moving in that. There are, are, are five couples that moved from Pasadena, Pasadena, the place you want to live, to Compton to be involved in this church. What is their problem? You know what their problem is? They get it. They get it. Life is more important. And they're willing to relocate so they can be involved in the living church of God. You see, we need to reconsider um, church in our lives and reconsider how we fit into the whole program. And we need to accommodate its importance in our life because you know what? We're going to spend eternity together. This is what it's all about. None of that out there. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege we have of being your children. And we pray, Father, that you would work on our hearts as we all uh, tweak uh, and adjust our heart to be in confirmation with your DNA of your church. For it is your church. We thank you for Valley, the impact that this church has on our lives, the indelible impact that uh, it's making in our families. And we pray that you'll continue to guide and bless us Bless us today as we reflect upon these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much.